you're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. again to another edition of Game Changers Clinical Conversations. My name is Jeff Wall and um, I'm your host and uh, hopefully you've been sticking around with uh, me or you're a new listener uh, where we talk really about anything having to do with uh, pharmacy and pharmacotherapy and uh, try and give uh, especially the the kind of the boots on the ground pharmacists, the ones working hard every day, uh, uh, some information that they can use every day in in their practice and uh, hopefully uh, you'll continue to listen. I I thank all those who who, who, have logged on and have been listening to this podcast uh please if you get a chance uh you know, like the podcast on whatever platform you're using and and, and uh you know uh, recommend it to your friends and family and everybody else so we can get more people uh, listening to this uh also remember that this is uh you know you can uh, pharmacist listening can get ce for this and i'll remind you about that towards the end as well so anyway uh today we are going to talk about nothing COVID because we, again, those people have been listening know that I've been trying to not make this the COVID show if at all possible. And it's, it's sometimes hard to do that, but this is actually something that I think was, was pretty interesting. And it was actually just uh, uh, published a few weeks ago uh, in JAMA. And uh, it, it, it brought to mind a, a, a subject that I'm, I'm, I hate to use the word passionate about, but it's something I certainly harangue my residents and, and, and my physicians about a lot, which is the use of, of, of skeletal muscle relaxants. And, and I think, you know, all the pharmacists listening are, you know, are, are certainly aware of these medications. And, you know, even back many, many years ago when I was a community pharmacist, you know, we always talked about the Holy Trinity. When someone got hurt, they would get, you know, Vicodin and Valium and Soma. At least that's what it was, the Holy Trinity was when, when, when I was in school or when I was first coming out of school. And, you know, I, I think uh, thankfully, at least where I practice in Iowa, Soma has pretty much disappeared because it's, it's really a kind of, in my opinion, a garbage drug. Um, but uh, uh we still see quite a bit of skeletal muscle relaxants prescribed. And this was a paper that was, again, published uh, in, on June 24th that took a look at, at the uh, um, trends in the United States of just physician prescribing of all muscle relaxants between the years 2005 and 2016. And those years, of course, are pretty important because that was right about the point where the opioid crisis was reaching uh, a general knowledge and everyone was kind of aware of it. And we started to see opioid prescriptions drop in patients for chronic non-malignant pain. But uh, I think what we what is probably going to not be surprising to to the listeners is that we saw an increase in in the prescribing of other uh, uh, medications to kind of if you will take the place of that. And certainly we've seen that with the gabapentinoids, and we're starting to realize that you know that the the indiscriminate prescribing of, of gabapentin and pregabalin has its own issues, and that that's certainly a topic for for another podcast. This paper, however, again looked at looked at skeletal muscle relaxants, and um, it was a it was a cross sectional study of U.S. physician visits, and 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 basically how how, how it worked was uh, they they looked at, used data from the National Ambulatory uh, Medical Care Survey, uh, which is a gigantic survey that um, uh, collects data for all sorts of, of, of long term ambulatory care issues in like hypertension, diabetes, stuff like that, and they also it also takes a look at general prescribing habits and outcomes and things like that. This 
particular uh, data selection from this basically just took a look at um, ambulatory care visits with encounters of, uh, of physicians in the United States. They looked at pretty much all the big skeletal muscle relaxants, and we'll talk about those in just a second. Um, and then what they basically found in, out, of a, out of a set that was, that, uh, was about 315 million, yes, million office visits, so this is a, a, fairly, a fairly large group, uh, they, they basically found that, that uh, there was a dramatic increase in the prescription of skeletal muscle relaxants uh, during that period from 2005 to 2016. Um, and uh, in particular, they found a significant increase in older patients, patients uh, who, who were from age either 45 to 64 or 65 and above. Um, and they found, that, again, that, that overall, uh, the, uh, skeletal, muscle uh, skeletal muscle relaxant prescribing, that's hard to say, uh, nearly doubled from 15.5 million in 2005 to 30.7 million in 2016. Um, and then uh, the people who were on them, uh, the, the duration of how long they were on them was much, much longer. Um, and continued use uh, occur, uh, occurred from 8.5 million patients in 2005 to 24.7 million uh, uh, patients in 2016. So, what this basically tells us is that is that not only are skeletal muscle relaxants being used more, but they're being used for longer periods of time. And and I, and, and I think it's important to remember that these drugs were never really designed for long-term use, right? I mean, they were used, you know, someone had had acutely sprained or had muscle spasm, you know, associated with back pain or, or associated with some other muscle injury. That these were really designed to be short-term drugs to help through that. Even though the data to, that even says that they work for that is is actually pretty pretty minimal. So the, the the authors of this paper basically found that that uh, skeletal muscle relaxant use you know really you know jumped at between 2005 and 2016. In particular, they found that that in older adults that number was was as high or higher, and that's a, a concern. Especially um, we had a a previous uh, a game a game changer clinical conversation podcast where I spoke with my colleague Kristen Meyer, and we talked a lot about the the anticholinergic burden that we that we put on 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 elders and that that has problems with the cognition and all sorts of other stuff. And this is the same thing. Many of these drugs have, have potent anticholinergic side effects, and we're going to be using them uh, for long periods of time in elders. And I think we really have to think about the, the, the benefit versus risk ratio um, when, when, when it comes to uh, uh, using these medications. So that's, you know, the, this paper itself is really what kind of got me started thinking about, gee, maybe it's time to talk a little bit about, about skeletal muscle relaxants and their use and, 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 and what are some Pearls that that again, I, I suspect many of the community pharmacists listening to me have already have a good idea of, but just kind of you know generally going back to basics and talking a little bit about them. Um, and and so you know I think the first piece about this is that is that if if you have been working particularly as a community pharmacist and found that you're seeing a big increase in the number of skeletal muscle relaxants, it isn't just you. Um, obviously, uh, this paper shows pretty pretty nicely that uh, it is an increase uh, nationwide, and it is almost certainly a response to the opioid crisis where we are you know now you know decreasing opioids. Patients are still wanting something for relief, and so we've basically you know 
backed off on opioids and increased on other drugs like skeletal muscle relaxants and gabapentinoids. So, so what, what, you know, what does the average pharmacist kind of need to know about this? Well, I think the, one of the first and one of the most serious pieces and, and issues that I've seen with these medications over the last few years is, at least in my world, the dramatic increase in the prescription of baclofen for uh, a peripheral muscle spasm. And that's a big mistake, in my opinion. Um, uh, it, I think it, uh, many prescribers, unfortunately, conflate spasticity and spasm, and they are actually two completely different things. Um, and when we talk about central nervous system drugs like baclofen, and I think to a, to an, a smaller extent, tizanidine, these are drugs that work more in, in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord and are used much more for central muscle spasticity as opposed to you know peripheral mu uh, muscle spasm and and unfortunately I think these drugs kind of get used interchangeably and that's that's a, I think that's a that's a, an area I think where pharmacists can really work to educate prescribers because they are completely different things right spasticity is a, a disorder of motor neurons in this in the central nervous system that um, usually manifests as increased muscle tone and stiffness right and the classic example of that and I suspect many of you have seen patients with this is is, is patients with severe multiple sclerosis will often develop significant central spasticity uh, and that makes it difficult for them to for them to move their legs or or or, or other or other limbs because of that whereas um, uh, spasms so skeletal muscle spasms or peripheral muscle spasms are localized muscle contractions that arise from acute trauma or muscle strain so it's important to not to conflate those two you know spasticity is a is a central phenomenon it's almost always caused by some sort of central nervous system uh, damage or, or disease or pathophysiology, whereas spasticity is, uh, or, or spasms, excuse me, is a, a involuntary local muscle contraction that's usually due to acute trauma. Now, benzos, benzodiazepines, have are actually used for both. So, so you know that is a possibility. But what I see many, many times is is you know kind of cross you know uh, purpose prescribing there. And in particular, when patients have this peripheral muscle spasm, uh, they get prescribed baclofen, and and I think that's 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 a real issue because baclofen is a far more dangerous drug than I think most people give it credit for. Um, I actually have in the last just two, three weeks in my own hospital, we've had two patients who uh, I, I, uh, inadvertently took too much baclofen and ended up pretty much in trouble. And one was actually on the ventilator in my hospital uh, for, for several days. The other was just uh, very, very goofy for a few days and, and, and on my medicine service. But, you know, the, you know, the bottom line is that, it, you know, it, it has potency and antidepressant activities. And if you're using it because somebody hurt their back, that's probably not a great idea. So, so you know, let's, you know, we can kind of talk a little bit about first, you know, spasticity. And again, this is, this is done much more um, in, in the central nervous system. And it's, and it's, it's not, really manifest as spasm so much as muscle stiffness and 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 things like that and um of the of the of the antispasticity medications, baclofen is, is certainly a good drug to use, and and in fact works quite well for things like 
multiple sclerosis or myasthenia gravis or some sort of trauma to the spinal cord where people have, you know, par uh, where paraplegics have difficult time with muscle spasticity. It's a great drug for that. And it works really, really good. Um, it, it, you know, and it works both, both presynaptically and postsynaptically to inhibit those spinal reflexes. So you don't get that spasm. Um, uh, in fact, uh, it, it, so I think it's a great drug for that, but even patients who use it for that will often complain of drowsiness and sleepiness and dizziness are on it. And, um, and, and option for those patients is often uh, this, uh, the intrathecal injection or intrathecal pump. I've seen several patients in my career who have had uh, usually some sort of central nervous system disease bad enough that that baclofen had to be delivered by intrathecal pumps and um, um, uh, to control the, 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 the spasticity centrally, yet not have too many peripheral side effects. Again, um, I've seen profound CNS depression um, uh, with, with uh, baclofen. And remember that baclofen is cleared renally almost entirely. And so when patients start to get into trouble uh, with, with renal insufficiency or acute kidney injury, that in particular is, is, is a dangerous combination in somebody who's on high-dose baclofen uh, because it, the drug will absolutely build up, so will its metabolites, and you can end up in real, real trouble with that. And like I said, I just recently had a patient who that exact same thing happened to, and uh, uh, the patient ended up with uh, being on our, in our hospital service for several days just waiting for the drug to essentially wear off. I have actually seen profound baclofen overdose, and this is more of acute overdose than, than, than unintentional uh, rise of levels because of acute kidney injury, uh, lead to profound coma. Uh, and patients are on the vent for a week or even two weeks trying to get the, the drug to basically wear away. So, um, you know, it, 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 the, the CNS depressant effects really should not be underemphasized, I think. The other side of baclofen, of course, is that it, it can precipitate a withdrawal syndrome when suddenly stopped. Most of the reports of that are with uh, intrathecal um, um, uh, um, abrupt discontinuation. So someone's pump failed or something along those lines. But because it is a GABA stimulator, you can see, you know, very similar similar type of withdrawal symptoms that you would see, for example, to alcohol withdrawal. You can see agitation, delirium, uh, fever, tremors, tachycardia, and even potentially seizures in, in these patients. And, um, and, and while the data is, is we don't have as many reports as people are taking oral baclofen as we do intrathecal baclofen, it is an issue with it. So, you know, again, baclofen is a good drug. It works, I think, well for what it was designed to work for, which again is, is usually this severe central spasticity. Um, I don't think it's a very good drug to be recommending for someone who hurt their back at work and you've tried a couple other things and it just isn't working. Um, I, I think I think that the risk-benefit ratio in most of those cases just doesn't make a, a sensible proposition to use that medication. The other medication that's often used centrally but is used peripherally too sometimes is tizanidine. Tizanidine is essentially a, a, a structural analog of clonidine and, and so you know it, it has uh, uh, several effects um, as far as reducing uh, co-contraction of, of muscle groups and things like that as it works centrally. Uh, it's available orally, which is kind of nice. It doesn't have any other real version. It has a lot of uh, interactions because it, it, it goes through cytochrome P450, particularly the 1A2 subsystem. So you want to be careful in, in patients, for example, with Cipro and Tazanidine. I've seen that combination get people in trouble a couple of times over the years. It has uh, some potent anticholinergic side effects, um, so dry mouth, dry eyes, constipation, things along those lines. But because it's a structural analog, 
analog of clonidine, it can cause hypotension. And if anything I've seen that gets people into trouble with with that, um, um, it's it's been hypotension or orthostasis. And often people, often prescribers, kind of overlook that. And someone who's you know says, you know, doc, I'm in real dizzy. I don't know what's going on here. Every time I stand up, I feel like I'm going to fall over. And they take a look at all their medications and go, well, gee, you're not on any antihypertensives. And I think sometimes we forget that tizanidine is 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 an analog of clonidine and can have you know hypotensive and, and bradycardic effects. You know, uh, the gabapentinoids have been used occasionally for central spasticity, um, uh, and and you will occasionally see that done. Keep in mind that the evidence does suggest that if you're going to use gabapentin for central spasticity, the doses are pretty high, and 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 uh, the stuff I've read suggests that really you're not going to get much of an effect until you get to like you know 2,400 to 3,600 milligrams a day of of, of gabapentin. So really on the high side of of the dose there. So so that's kind of spasticity, but that's probably not where you're going to see a whole lot of these patients because I expect the average boots on the ground community pharmacist is going to see much more of muscle spasms, right? And so someone hurt their back, someone hurt their shoulder, whatever, any sort of common skeletal muscle complaint that can cause spasms as well as long-term stuff like fibromyalgia and, and, and things like that can sometimes lead to, to what is perceived by the patient as muscle spasm. Now, there's a wide variety of medications that are FDA approved for muscle spasm. I think it's important to realize that most of these drugs have very little strong data to support them. Many of them were kind of semi-grandfathered in to uh, the FDA approval process uh, and, and, and really have low levels of, 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 of efficacy to support them. And um, for, for elders in particular, because so many of these drugs are either uh, anticholinergic drugs or are derivatives of, of, of uh, CNS depressant drugs, most of them are on the beers list. Now, again, that doesn't necessarily mean we absolutely can't use these medications, but uh, um, an older study, but before the one I mentioned to you, you know, suggested that, that uh, you know, uh, about 15% of skeletal muscle relaxants long-term are issued to patients over age 65. So, you know, you're, it's something you're absolutely going to see, I think, and, and I think we, again, have to look at risk versus benefit. Cyclist benzaprine or flexoril is probably uh, uh, the one that's most used. It's interesting to note that even though it's probably the most common drug used for for, for back spasm or for, for muscle spasm, it actually has no activity on skeletal muscle. It's essentially a TCA. It's essentially um, it's only it's it it looks almost exactly the same as amitriptyline chemically, and really probably has much more of an effect on its sedative effects than it does its ability to to relieve muscle spasm or contraction. So people still have the spasm or contraction. They just are tired and, and, and are able to sleep more or something along those lines. Now, we use that to our advantage in fibromyalgia because uh, we know in fibromyalgia that sleep patterns are disturbed. And with that with, and with the muscle issues they have, cyclobenzaprine can be an effective drug there. But it, it's interesting to note that pharmacologically, cyclobenzaprine is almost exactly the same drug as amitriptyline and probably doesn't have a lot of, of benefit beyond that. It also uh, undergoes a, a, um, a, um, a, um, extensive metabolism through the cytochrome P450 system. So again, there's some interactions I think you need to watch out for. Now, the carbamol um, is interestingly a, a uh, acting muscle relaxant that's actually a derivative of, of all drugs, guaifenesin. And I know you know you're thinking to yourself, guaifenesin. How would how would a derivative of gri Gryphenicin. And and again, we don't know how it works. It's one of the, you know, these very, very old drugs that we have a, we have a very poor idea of how it actually works in patients. Um, it seems to cause 
medication too, but probably less than 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 uh, cyclobenzaprine. One study suggested about about forty percent less sedation, which is which is interesting. Um, but it uh, uh, because uh, it, it it does work centrally. There are some uh, issues with 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 uh, uh, central nervous system depression, and people again can get confusion and 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 sometimes even respiratory depression if they're taking opioids and benzos with this. Um, those of you who have seen a lot of this drug dispense probably have heard from patients that it can cause uh, urine to turn kind of a brownish green, which is it's not harmful or anything, but an, a, kind of an interesting side effect with that. Soma or carisprodol, um, again, was, was when I came out of school in the, in the, in the late 80s and early 90s, we, we handed it out like candy. Um, it was in our fast mover bin in the pharmacy I worked in, and we just used tons of it, tons of it, tons of it. it, it it's important to remember that 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 soma or carisprodol is actually a barbiturate derivative, and so because of that, um, it has you know a, a severe you know can have severe barbiturate-like acti uh, activity, and has all the side effects you would expect from barbiturates, including you know drowsiness, insomnia, respiratory depression. Again, especially when you're taking common drugs, so that kind of you know holy grail that we talked about before of of you know in the old days of soma, Vicodin, and, and Valium. Looking back, I, I can't believe we didn't see more people in trouble with that with that combination. Uh, the risk of dependence is pretty high with this, and, and many states have made it a controlled substance, you know, which I think is actually probably a good idea. I am one of the I'm of someone who is a firm believer in not using this medication if at all possible. Uh, orphanadrine is essentially a, a benzodiazepine, or I'm sorry, is a, a Benadryl or diphenhydramine uh, analog, um, but has actually a much stronger effect uh, on the on the H, uh, antagonistic effect on the H1 receptor. Also seems to have some effect on NMDA receptors as well. Uh, we have again very little data showing how well it works, um, but um, uh, in some areas of the country, it's actually a really popular drug. But again, it's mostly a sedative drug um, and causes again mostly you know the dry anticholinergic side effects you're going to see. And then uh, finally, uh, metaxalone, um, which is probably the most expensive of, of all the, the peripheral agents out there, um, um, uh, has, uh, again, a, no direct effect on, on skeletal muscles, but uh, does uh, uh, probably have some effect on CNS depression. Um, interestingly, uh, when taken with a high-fat meal, the AC is increased, and so people can have varying effects depending on when they take the medication. And big side effects of that drug include dizziness, headache, uh, and nervousness as well. And again, um, um, uh, the, 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 I think the one big be benefit that, that uh, metaxalone may have over the other drugs is um, that it seems to have a very low effect of cognitive defects, drowsiness, or, or uh, respiratory depression. And so it may be one of the safer ones to use in along those lines for that. So uh, it's pretty expensive, um, unfortunately, and so that's always an issue as well. So the, issue, the, the bottom line with those medications is, is that, again, we have very little data showing they're beneficial and no long-term data at all. Um, and so I think for acute um, uh, uh, trauma or injury, it, you know, is a one to three month uh, trial of some of these medications reasonable? Yeah, maybe. Um, I would say that if the patient doesn't have any real uh, benefit, there's really no point in continuing the medication, especially if, if you're dealing with, with issues that just that makes the patient drowsy. Certainly, long-term use of these drugs, except for perhaps things like fibromyalgia, really have never been studied and probably should not be used, especially in elders. And I think we really need to take a step back with these medications and think about risk versus benefit. If we have very little data showing how beneficial the drugs are, uh, we know that they have numerous adverse effects. Um, you know, is is the risk versus benefit going going to going to be something you want to deal with in these patients? And again, that's that's a patient-to-patient -patient decision and a, and a discussion that you. Uh, 
you know, the pharmacist, the patient, the, the prescriber should all have. But um, I think the the study I, I mentioned at the beginning of the, of the of the talk of the podcast kind of really shows the fact that we are seeing a lot more prescription of these. And I, I think there is uh, at least in 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 a lot of the physicians and prescribers that I see kind of an underappreciation of some of the some of the dangers these drugs have. And I think we need to, as pharmacists, need to be a, a better advocate for saying, hey, you know, maybe Soma isn't the greatest drug for this patient, or you know, maybe we shouldn't be using Baclan as someone who hurt their back. Um, you know, as far as as far as long term uh, non chronic non malignant pain, you know, the, the study that came out a couple years ago in JAMA that suggested that when they compared Flexeril and um, or excuse me, cyclobenzaprine, oxycodone, and, and and ibuprofen for 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 long term back pain, ibuprofen was actually the best drug. And in fact, uh, uh, the skeletal muscle relaxant not only had little benefit but also had a lot of side effects. So um, I, I think in the end, I think we have to we have to take a look at 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 you know as a class how effective are these drugs in the short term, and in the long term, I think in most cases, especially in elders, you're going to find that that I don't think you're going to see many cases where the benefit outweighs the risk. So, so that's kind of my talk today. And, and, and again, you know, the, the key pieces to take away with, uh, we'll kind of talk about in a second. First, um, I, as always want to thank CE Impact uh, for sponsoring this podcast. Um, please go to CE Impact um, at the, at, when you're done listening to this. Um, we remember that, that uh, you don't have to just suffer when you listen to this podcast. You actually do get continuing education credit for it. So go to the CE Impact website and check them out. That website is in our show notes. And, and and that will, you know, at least give you something for, for listening to my droning voice for, for uh, several minutes. So we'll uh, t- let the CE Impact people talk about their uh, impact here uh, right now. Hey there, Game Changer podcast listeners. This is the founder of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, Todd Yuri. We are so excited that the team at CE Impact has partnered with the Pharmacy Podcast Network to bring you a weekly subscription service which weeds through the clinical guidelines and evidence and gives it to you straight straight to your inbox every Friday, straight information in just 15 minutes. That's right, just 15 minutes every Friday, you'll get an opportunity to have CE on your phone, podcast form, evidence-based information distilled down in just 15 minutes. You'll have the information and the CE you need. Check this out, go to CE impact.com once again that's ce as in continuing education impact.com ce impact.com we thank you for listening to the pharmacy podcast network 36 shows 45 participating farm d's 1050 plus episodes so much happening here get involved in the network there's opportunities for participation in a multitude of subjects and always remember you are the hub of healthcare. we love our pharmacists please stay safe during this time during this pandemic we love you i thank you from the bottom of my heart for listening to the pharmacy podcast nation so bottom line, if, if I sound like I'm a, I'm a baclofen hater, I, I'm not. Um, I do think baclofen is a good drug for central spasticity, and I've certainly seen it improve the lives of patients who have central spasticity. Where I get very, very nervous and have seen many adverse effects is in when we use it for what it was not really intended for, which is for, for peripheral muscle spasm. So I, I, try, I try to not recommend that drug. I think with the, with the peripheral spasticity, uh, 
schedule muscle relaxant drugs we have on the market. Remember that that the data showing they're beneficial is is very low. That long-term safety uh, information is almost non-existent, and especially in the elders, I think we really need to take a step back and think to ourselves, you know, is this uh, medication's benefit worth the risk? And maybe do a little deeper scribing for 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 something uh, and and contacting prescribers saying that maybe the benefit just isn't 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 worth the risk in these patients. So anyway, that's my show. Thanks again for listening to uh, Game Changers clinical conversations. Uh, We'll keep doing COVID and no COVID stuff as we go along here. So hopefully we'll see you next week. Again, be sure and like the podcast. And uh, remember, time flies. I don't know where it's going, but the most important today is today. See you next week.